The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library, with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Tip City Public Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Good morning. Welcome to your first edition of the Book Nook for 2024. I'm Vic McCunis. And uh, back in 1994, I was hosting Excursions on WYSO, a music program many of you remember. And I was getting these phone calls from publicists for authors rather regularly. They'd call me up and they'd say, hey, Vic, uh, we've got this author who's going to be in Dayton coming through a bookstore there, and do you want to interview the author? And I would say, well, I host a music show. Why would I want to talk to an author? And I kept getting these calls. And finally, I'm sort of a dim bulb, but finally the light bulb over my head did uh, figuratively explode, and I said to myself, you know, I love books. Maybe I should interview an author. So back in 1994, I did interview an author, I read her book first, and she was coming through town, and I didn't really know anything about her. For one thing, I didn't know that she was kind of famous. I wasn't familiar with her. It's the first book by her I'd ever read. Her name was Anne McCaffrey. She died some years ago. She wrote fantasy, and she had co-written a book with another author and was coming through Books and Company. So I interviewed her on the phone for about 10 minutes, and during the course of the interview, I got the feeling that she thought, this guy doesn't even know who I am. And after the interview ended, about 10 minutes later, I got a phone call, and it was her co-author. They apparently were staying at the same hotel, and they were bored, and she wanted equal time. So I did my first two author interviews on that very same day back in 1994. All these years later, we've done a few more. And... The dream of a lot of writers who are in our local area is being on this program. I get approached all the time by local authors who want to be on the show, and sadly, I have disappointed most of them because there's just so many of them and so little time, but I do the best I can. And one local author, a writer from Dayton, who I've had on the show a number of times, is Martha Moody. Are you familiar with Martha Moody? She's a great writer. Did you know that she had a book that sold about 700,000 copies? I bet you didn't know that. Well, we're going to listen now to an interview I did with Martha back in, uh, when was this? Oh, 2009 for her book, Sometimes Mine. Here's Martha Moody on your book nook potpourri. Well, I love this new book. T tell our listeners what it's about. Um, well, it's about a female um, cardiologist who's very driven. She's an invasive cardiologist, which is, you know, does cardiac caths and interventional um, cardiological things like putting in stents. And there are not many females who do that. And so she's a middle-aged female cardiologist whose life is pretty much her work. And um, she, she's, she's good at it. Um, but she doesn't have a balanced life. She's got a, a daughter who's about 20 that she's estranged from. She's divorced. But for, as the book starts, for about 12 years, she has um, had an affair with a married college basketball coach 
who lives in West Virginia, and they meet in a um, motel room, hotel room, I guess, Marriott, um, for two hours a week every Thursday night. And that's kind of her time of peace. And um, the book's about what happens when he gets sick and she comes in, and it's kind of concurrently with that, she comes in contact with his family and how their relationship changes from then on out. And Jeannie is the physician, and Mick is the coach. And and Mick is married and, and um, has a very successful basketball program. Uh, the, the games are quite often on television, and Jeannie can vicariously watch her lover on TV and, and try to think, well, what's he thinking right yeah, now? What's, what's he feeling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a very voyeuristic kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. How, how did you get the idea for that? Um, gosh, that's a good question. I, I don't know exactly. Um, I, I, I can't remember where the idea of Jeannie came from. Well, that's not true. I do kind of remember. When, when Best Friends came out, I went to a few book clubs. And um, there's one point in Best Friends where the main character, whose name is Claire, has an affair with her ex-husband. And, you know, there's a lot of bad things that people do in that book. But at the book clubs, the things that, that, that women, because it was mostly women at the book clubs, were upset about was her having that affair with her ex-husband. And they were really sometimes very irate about it. And, you know... I sort of thought, well, you know, it's not a good thing, but it's something that people can do. And isn't that interesting that of all the bad things that people do in the book, that's the thing that upsets people. And I thought it might be interesting to write about a mistress, just, you know, kind of almost a technical challenge to see if I could make a mistress at all sympathetic or believable or, you know, make make a reader understand what they were going through. You know, and I I had some patients that I knew were long-term mistresses and I I didn't think of them as horrible people. I thought their situation was kind of sad, you know, more than uh-huh. anything. So that was how I got the idea for Jeannie. And then then um Mick years ago my mother said to me, oh, I just read an interesting article. It said, who would you have dinner with if you could have dinner with anyone in the world? And she said, I'd have dinner with Henry Kissinger. <laughs> and, and I said, I'd have dinner with Coach K, Coach Krzyzewski, who is a basketball coach at Duke. And my husband went to Duke, and we used to, we watched the Duke games on TV. And it surprised me so much that I said that because, I, 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 I mean, I just didn't know where it came from. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why did you think that? And I, I think coaches are very, very interesting because they have to deal with so many different people and different levels of things. They have to know the game. They have to understand their players. They have to deal with the public. They have to deal with the administration or their bosses. You know, it just seems like it's a very social, very um, demanding job. And it is somebody that, you know, they'll flash on TV, they'll flash to the coaches. And it's kind of interesting to think, you know, what are they thinking? How, what are, it's just kind of interesting to watch them. Uh-huh. Um, and we go to the UD games, and, you know, it's kind of fun to watch the coaches down there, whatever they're doing. It's, it's interesting to see. Because I think you get a feeling of their personalities and their, oh, leadership styles, I guess, just by watching them. Hmm. Martha Moody joins us. We're talking about her new novel, Sometimes Mine. I love the way you depict the emotions uh, of 
Jeannie Toledo in, in this book, she compartmentalizes so much. She's the, the doctor. She's doing these heavy-duty medical procedures. And then she has this little two-hour compartment where she's with her lover. And she realizes over the course of the book that her whole perception of life and, and reality and love and, and her relationship with this coach is really being altered by the minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she cha- she changes a lot in the course of the book, I think. Um, I, I really liked her as a character. Um, I, I felt for her. And... It's interesting because in some ways I think it, it, it can, the book itself can be a hard sell because people hear that it's about a mistress. And I saw something on the Internet that said something like, this is a very well-written book if you don't mind immorality. Or <laughs> I got such a kick out of that. But, you know, it's not really about people doing bad things. I mean, it's, it's really about how people change and the sort of um, odd Sometimes serendipitous, sometimes you don't know, sometimes just the strange things that change people and um, the strange ways that one person can influence another. Um, and, and ultimately, I think the people in the book behave, they behave really well. They're certainly not saintly people, you mm. know, but they, they really they kind of rise above themselves, I think, in a way. I don't know. One aspect of the book that I was intrigued by was I think that we're always looking for a sense of closure, and it's so hard to obtain in our relationships, in our lives, with with various events that happen. The closure just never really seems to be complete. And in this book, they're looking for closure in different ways. We don't want to give away too much about it, but when, when you throw in... Mick's wife, his long-suffering wife. That that was brilliant. And and she's she's likable. I think she's understandable. I I felt for her. Um, actually, the whole idea for the book is based. I'll tell you the story it was based on. And it's not this story, so I it won't spoil anything for anybody. But but the feeling of this story. Um, I know somebody. This is a true story. And. Um, old-time family friends and they had a daughter who um, was married and she and her husband had a son they lived in Virginia and a neighbor moved in and a new woman and um, they were really nice to her and had her over barbecues and stuff and um, became friendly with her and then the husband ran off with her and left this um, woman with her son well the woman that was left was devastated and never remarried, um, never dated, nothing. You know, oh raised her son. And the new couple um, were very entwined with each other and were together for, for years and never had children, um, very involved with each other. And then he got sick. He got cancer, the, the husband, the male in here. And the, the new wife didn't have anywhere to turn. She um, didn't really have any other friends. And she had had some contact with the first wife via the son. And she called on this first wife. And the first wife ended up helping the second wife nurse this guy. And at his funeral, um, the first wife and second wife were both there, as were their parents. And everybody's parents were from Ohio. And the parents of the first wife drove the parents of the second wife back home to Ohio. Oh, my. And that's a true story. Uh, Life is filled with lots of stories like that. (laughs) 
And, you know, that story, that story just sort of blew me away. Um, and I, and I know half of the people involved, you know, and they're, they're decent people. They're people you'd like as neighbors, but they're not, you know, they're not saints. They're not, you know, they're, they're ordinary people too. And it, it just impressed me. And, uh, and so I wanted to have something with that. And I'm sure it wasn't easy for them. I'm sure none of this was all, overall easy. And I'm sure that there was some cost to it, but, you know, how it worked out ultimately was a positive thing, I think, for everybody. Amazing. And, and I wanted to sort of have that spirit in a book. That was my idea. And that was Martha Moody talking about her novel, Sometimes Mine, recorded back in 2009 on your book, Nook Potpourri, our first program of 2024. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, sharing community voices through inspired storytelling. And we'll continue with our potpourri right after this. You're listening to the Book Nook on WYSO, starting off your year with a Book Nook potpourri. And a potpourri, in this case, not something you would stick in your drawer to make it smell good, unless maybe it's a manuscript you're never going to publish. Back in 2008, I interviewed a guy named Simon Montefiore, and he had two books out. One was called Sashenka, it was a novel, and the other was nonfiction, it was a biography of the young Joseph Stalin, called Young Stalin. Let's listen now to Simon Montefiore on your book nook, Potpourri. In the early 90s, I was a war correspondent down in the Caucasus, and, um, you know, which is, the, which is the, the, the wild and mountainous region between the Caspian and the Black Seas, where Georgia lies, which is, which is where Stalin was born. So I originally came to it... Um, from from, the, from from getting to know Georgia and Chechnya and all these kind of places in the early 90s. And I became fascinated by the history. And that led me to Stalin. And I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to write about Stalin in a new and, in a new and exciting way, not just as a sort of um, uh, inhuman in um, sort of monster that we'd been, that we'd been ed- the way we'd been educated about him in, during the Cold War, and not just as a as a as one of those insane psychopaths like Hitler and Hitler. Um, I thought that those analyses were in fact rather rather simplistic. And by an amazing chance, I got access to um, all the sort of personal archives of Stalin and, and and his top leaders that really enabled me to 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 write about it in a totally different way. And that was very exciting. Weren't you able to get your hands on his mother's diary? That's right. Um, when I was doing Young Stalin, which is, you know, um, which is which is a sort of biography of Stalin up to the revolution, um, I, I was incredibly blessed. And you know, this story, um, this, this life story of Stalin and his youth, um, you could just read it as a as a as an adventure story. It's such an amazing life. You know, he was a bank robber, a priest, a poet, a womanizer. Um, some some people said it was like an Alexander Dumas story, you know, like the mm. Count of Monte Cristo, and it is like that. Um, but equally, you know, it's filled with with new material um, which which has never ever been, you know, um, read in the West, um, which is which is really dramatic. I mean, the example you mention um, is Stalin's mother's memoirs. I mean, can you imagine the excitement of finding that this actually existed and was genuine? Um, but how did it survive? Well, that's an interesting story. You see, Stalin's mother was a very strong-willed woman, and she um, she didn't. I mean, 
she she did exactly what she wanted. She didn't like being told what to do. Very like her, her son, and and she used to be interviewed by all these um, these kind of journalists from Moscow, you know, Bolshevik journalists. But they would write these pieces about um, we met this saintly woman who gave birth to the great leader, and Stalin hated this sort of journalism. And he wrote a memo, which I found in the Moscow archives, saying, on no account is my mother to be interviewed by anybody. She's not to leave any memoirs etc., etc. But she did what the hell she liked. And before she died, she she, recalled, she dictated a short memoir. It's only about 17 pages long. and it, But it reveals Stalin as a normal person, and it clears up many um, mysteries about him. But, um, but, of course, when she handed it in to the, to the um, authorities there, they were horrified because Stalin had ordered that she shouldn't do this. So instead of filing it... Um, you know, in the correct place, or sending it to be read by Stalin. They filed it in a special documents in the sort of local archives and left it there. And um, so it stayed there for 70 years. And I don't think Stalin ever knew about it. Mm. Your luck. Yeah, just a piece of luck. Did you find, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that you had good access to archives? And has that uh, access gotten reduced in recent years? Yes. I mean, I got, I got access in a strange way because my first... I've written um, free history books, which are all, by the way, in paperback and available in the States now. Um, the first one was, was, was the biography of Prince Potemkin. Um, the book's called Potemkin, Catherine the Great's Imperial Partner. And that's the story of the great love affair between Potemkin and Catherine the Great. And that book was really based on new archives. You know, there, were, there were over a thousand love letters of this brilliant, this brilliant couple who were really the most admirable people ever to have ruled Russia, right up until today. And um, the Russians loved that book because it rehabilitated um, it rehabilitated these two Russians. She was known as a nymphomaniac and him as a, as a sort of pimp. And in fact, they were both astonishingly brilliant and, and romantic and interesting. And by coincidence, um, your president, George W. Bush, and his wife, also, also read that book, oh. and, they, and they said they used to read the love letters to each other in bed in the White House. Um, but Putin also read it, and they discussed it when they met, they met for the first time in St. Petersburg. Oh my! I know. And um, but the funny thing is that this, this, they trusted me after this book. It went down very well in Russia, so they gave me access when I wanted to do the Stalin thing. They gave me abs- a very privileged access to all the art documents. But by the time I wrote the Stalin, by the time I wrote and published Stalin, the Court of the Red Tsar, they didn't like the results. They didn't. They, they'd become much more authoritarian, and they didn't really like. Um, they didn't really like the sort of my approach, which sort of revealed all Stalin's crimes and the way things were run then. So then I was out of favour, and then I've, I'm back in favour again because of the young Stalin. So they seem to like that book. They but do. anyway, yeah, because oh. it shows it shows what an exceptional young man Stalin was. Uh-huh. And that suits the way they look at things today. He's very intelligent, isn't he? He's very intelligent. And he's not a bad poet. Well, he was an extremely good poet. And the, po- the poetry's all in the book. And, um, <laughs> and he was a very good singer. He was a very good poet. Um, you've got to realize, as a 17-year-old boy from nowhere, you know, Cobbler's son, he walked into the editorial offices of their equivalent of, say, the New Yorker, and... Um, threw down his, his poetry and said, read this, you're going to like it. And the editor, who was a very powerful man, as, as 
if you imagine the editor of the New Yorker might be, you know, the equivalent. Yeah, David Remnick is quite powerful. Yeah, um, <laughs> he, he read it and he said, actually, this is good poetry, and he published it in the, in this journal. So, you know, Stalin first was known um, as a as a poet, and, and ironically, his poetry enabled him to pull off the greatest bank robbery of the of the of the period, oh. and the big bank robbery, which is by the way that that scene, which is it is all on horseback, holding up a stagecoach. Stalin set it up, and the book opens with it, and that's the scene that they're going to use for the Miramax movie of this um, of this book, Young Stalin. They're making a film of it. Yeah, they're making a film of it, and I'm just trying to think who should be. We're discussing who should be Stalin because if you look at the cover of the book, Young Stalin. He was a very good-looking young man, you know, amazingly, because we think of the sort of fat, old, rather sort of sinister-looking feline creature of the, um, the, you know, the Second World War. But, it, you know, as a young man, he was very good-looking. And I Johnny people, Depp. Some people want Johnny Depp. Yeah. I'm thinking now it should be mm. Javier Bardem. Oh, he'd be perfect. You know, the guy from, uh-huh. you, know, you know, No no Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. He'd be brilliant, wouldn't he? I agree. I, I see the look. Yeah. The book is Young Stalin. It's just come out in a paperback. And as you mentioned when we started, you have a novel out. Now, what brought a historian to write a novel? Well, this this novel is um, something I've always wanted to write. It's based on, um, it contains many of the, the things that have happened to me, the things I've seen um, uh, in the archives, in the, you know, meeting oligarchs, the great Russian oil billionaires of today, and the origins of my family, you know, who, 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 were, who were Russian Jewish family from, you know, who left escape from Russia at the turn of the century. So there's a lot in here um, that, that I've seen, and that, that, that makes it very, it gives it a very genuine um, feel of what Russia's like. But you don't have to, you don't have to be sort of into, in, interested in Russia or interested even, into, even know any Russian history to read this book. It's really the story of a, of a girl, Sashenka, um, she's she's a young girl, daughter of a very wealthy Jewish millionaire in um, in St. Petersburg under the Tsars, and she joins the Bolsheviks, and she becomes um, during, under Stalin she becomes one of the uh, wife of the top leaders, and um, and in the third part, the um, an oligarch, a Russian you know billionaire from today, commissions a, a young historian to go into the archives and find out what happened to Sashenka, and really it's just an intimate. A story about love, about family, um, about children, about betrayal, about death, and about the redemption of the past. And it's just about the women in this family and the children um, over three generations and what happens to them across the 20th century. And, you know, it's a sort of, it's both inspiring and romantic, but also heartbreaking. And I think that anyone, you know, anyone, people who don't, people who don't even read history will, will I hope, enjoy it. People, people often say they, they sort of laughed as much as they cried when they read it. And I've put my heart and soul into it. And it's really about the, the children and this woman and the, what amazing things women went through in the 20th century in Russia. Simon Montefiore joins us, and uh, we're talking about his new novel, Sashenka, just published by Simon & Schuster. It's divided into three sections. The first section takes place in 1916 in St. Petersburg as the Bolsheviks are desperately fighting to survive about a year before the revolution. The next section is 1939, which is a, a crucial period in the Soviet Union. The, the purges of, of the late 30s have pretty much ended, but World War II is beginning, and um, 
the dreaded alliance with the Nazis is about ready to happen. And then in the third section, it's 2004, the Soviet Union is broken up, and historians are picking up the pieces. In fact, there's an historian in that section who uh, seems a little bit like you. Uh, there's a historian, yeah. yeah. But he's a Russian historian. In fact, he's based on, he's based on someone real who is like this wonderful, um, you know, Russian, uh, very handsome Russian guy who's, um, who always wears leathers and um, is a biker. But in fact, also the great, one of the great experts on secret police research in, um, in Russia. So he's a kind of amazing character. This is Maxi. Maxi. But, and you know, but and Katinka wants... is a little bit like you, too. Yeah, Katinka is more like me, but uh-huh. she, she's, um, she, except that she's a girl, but otherwise she's, she's very like me, and she goes into the archives, and anyone who's interested, um, I mean, this book, in a way, is like, as I said, it's really a, it's really a love story and a story about family, but you know, anyone's interested, anyone who's interested about the Soviet Union today, how it, how it became Russia today, if you like, um, We'll, we'll find some answers in there. You know, if it, you know, it, it, you'll see the way the archives work, the way the ex-KGB people um, still control everything. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's, and how the oligarchs live. All the details are correct, and you know, there's a, I think there's a real feel, especially in that third part of sort of Moscow today and how it works, and and uh, and people who are sort of wondering what on earth Russia is about today. We'll find some answers in that too. I hope. I'm guessing you must have encountered a lot of historical figures like Sashenka. She was so blinded by her ideology. That's right. And that's the fascinating thing about that period is you've got to realize these Bolsheviks, it was like sort of dealing with the Taliban. Um, you know, they, they were so fanatical and so blinded by their obsession with the progress of history and Marxism and so on that they just didn't, they just didn't see what was happening to them. And, you know, even as tragedy overtook them, they still believed so much in this. And it's also interesting, I mean, unusually in this book, I mean, not everybody, everybody, there are no sort of saints in this book. Everybody's, you know, everybody's involved in the, in, in the project. It's just there are different degrees of gray and gray, if you like. And actually, real life's like that, isn't it? I mean, mm. I mean you know, we've got to, you've, when you read this book, you, you know, You've got to ask yourself as you read this book, you know, it does love matter to you. How much do you love your children? Do you, how much do you love your beliefs? And, and, and how sort of white, how snow white are you really? You know, how would we act in these circumstances? So it's, you know, it, it raises a lot of questions about how we would behave in, similar, in a similar period, you know. And um, I think those are, sort of, those are big historical questions. But, but as I stress, it's really just what matters to me in this book, because I've written about power in my Stalin books, my Stalin history books. So in this book, what mattered to me was love and family and the intimate details of a woman's life. And of course, Stalin makes more than a cameo appearance. Yes, he appears, and so does Rasputin. Um, Sashenka's mother is a, is a fan of Rasputin and knows Rasputin. And in the first part, I mean, in the, in the St. Petersburg stuff, I mean, everyone's taking cocaine. It's very decadent. And in fact, that was what was happening. Um, you know, all these kind of top government officials in 1916, as the, you know, the last years and months of the Tsar, everyone was taking cocaine for headache, for, as a headache treatment. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and, and, uh, but the, but all, the, all, the sort of, all the material on, on Rasputin, on the government people under the Tsar, under how they lived and how they lived in their mansions, 
Um, all of that is accurate. So is so is the sort of portrayal of Stalin. Stalin, at one point, visits Sashenka's home unexpectedly, and his daughter, her daughter, gets up and in the, comes in and sits on his knee. And there's a terrible moment um, when when she um, when the little girl is about to, you know, suddenly realise it's it's Stalin and is about to say something terrible, and her poor parents are, are <laughs> agonised with um, with worry about what she's going to say. And this actually, this is based on a story that really did happen. And I interviewed the child mm. who who had sat on his knee. So, you know, the, the historical bits in the background are, um, are are accurate. But as I said, you know, you can read this without knowing what a communist is or caring. It's really just it's really just about these women. And and some people who read it, I mean, the nice thing is that it's been bought by Russia. Um, so it's been translated into Russian, which is quite a compliment because, mm-hmm. you know. I really went straight. I spent so much time there. You know, I really know how the streets feel and how the food tasted, tastes and how the apartment blocks smell and everything. So I'm I'm so pleased about that. Um, but um, but really, it's just a story of family. I loved your portrayal of her parents. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, they they um, they are sort of tragic characters, but you know, they are Jewish. They've both sort of made it to great sort of aristocratic um, wealth and prosperity. They live in a huge mansion in St. Petersburg. Um, they have drivers and a huge staff and, they, and diamonds. Um, and both of them have sort of come from the shtetls, um, the Jewish villages of, of sort of Ukraine and Poland. And now they're sort of, now they're in, in Moscow, but they, neither of them in their own way are completely happy. I mean, all the characters, all the main characters are, are, are totally invented, I should say. I mean, mm. The um, if the background's all accurate, you know, Sashenka and her mother and, and father. Um, the mother is very decadent, uh, very selfish. She's a sort of she's a sort of Russian Scarlett O'Hara, mm. and um, mm. and a terrible mother who is jealous of her daughter's beauty and um, poise. And Sashenka herself, you know, is I really love her. I've come to sort of feel that she's more real than many of the historical characters I, I've written about and. And the children, uh, again, I just love those children. I, I, I sort of cried as I wrote the book sometimes. It's just so heart-rending what happens to them. So, um, so it's been a wonderful experience to write it after the history book. Well, it's really an amazing novel. And I must say, without giving anything away, the ending gave me chills. Uh, and I mean that literally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's really a heart-rending story. And mm-hmm. And you know, when people read it, they sometimes say, "But that never did that really ever happen?" I mean, but that that happened again and again. There's, there's, there's thousands of stories like that, hundreds of thousands of stories. I mean, you know, the, what these people, what the women. I mean, that's why I wanted to write the book because, you know, it's really about what these women went through in the 20th century. And it's just astonishing that they managed to survive and that mm-hmm. their families, some of these families, the things they they survived is just amazing and. We've read so many novels about the Holocaust and what happened in Europe under the Nazis um, and to families. And so, in a sense, you know, we, we really haven't read um, anything about what happened in the, in the Soviet Union at that time in the same way. And that's what I'm trying to do here is to, to show, to tell that story. And that was Simon Montefiore in your book, Nook Potpourri. And he was talking about two books he had out back in 2008, Sashenka, which was a novel, and uh, a paperback that had just come out of his biography of the young Joseph Stalin called Young Stalin. 
And uh, we have more potpourri coming your way right after this. You're listening to the Book Nook on WYSO, our first program of 2024. We're looking back at some uh, programs we did a number of years ago. And up next, Craig McDonald, my only interview with him, was recorded 14 years ago for his novel, Print the Legend. Was there really a best friend of Ernest Hemingway that was like this guy? There were a few people he's based on that were kind of around Hemingway's orbit. There was one named Jonathan Latimer, who was a crime fiction novelist, who actually lived in Key West at the same time as Hemingway did. And they were friends for a brief period of time. Uh, The problem with Hemingway was that if you were a writer and you were his friend, you probably weren't going to last very long (laughs) because he was such an archly competitive person. And uh, he did much better in long-term friendships with people who were far away from from the writing field. And uh, Hector was also modeled uh, quite a bit, at least in the first book and and the short story that introduced him on a crime novelist named James Crumley, who was um, a real idol and an influence on me. And a a number of crime writers cite him, uh, including Michael Conley and Dennis Lehane and uh, George Pelicanos were all kind of James Crumley acolytes. And Crumley's sort of a writer's writer who who never really got the fame he deserved. He passed away a couple of years ago. His most famous book is probably one called The Last Good Kiss, which has an opening paragraph that, that people tend to cite as one of the great opening paragraphs in crime fiction. And uh, his first novel actually was a Vietnam War novel called One to Count Cadence. But Hector's kind of modeled on him as well. Craig McDonald has joined us. His new novel is called Print the Legend. And you had me from the second I saw the cover. I love this photograph of Ernie. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fairly obscure photo. You don't see around a great deal of him holding his shotgun shirtless in a basement. Um, it it may or may not be the shotgun that supposedly delivered the fatal shot to him in July second, nineteen sixty one, in Ketchum, Idaho. This is really a, a literary mystery, and I don't mean that as in literary like really well written i mean this is a mystery about literature yes yeah yeah that's been kind of a running theme through all three books uh, hector lassiter is sort of popularly known or, or his publicist put out the, the tagline for him that he's the man who lives what he writes and writes what he lives because there is this kind of overlap or tension between his biography and the events in his life and and what ends up on the page and that's sort of been a building theme that, that kind of crescendos in this particular novel where um, Hector hears that some writings have surfaced of Hemingway's and some of his own early writings from when he was he was trying to be a literary writer in Paris before he became a, a crime fiction writer. And uh, he's intent upon protecting not only his own legacy, but, but Hemingway's. At the point we meet him in the book, Hector is 65 years old, and he's starting to kind of regret the persona he shaped for himself. And he's he's come to the conclusion that Hemingway, who was a master self-marketer at a time, people really weren't. I mean, he was, he was just at the Madonna level in terms of being able to kind of shrewdly self-promote himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of collapsed under the weight of his own, um, his own public persona. And in fact, Edmund Wilson, who was a, a famous critic in the early 20th century and considered Hemingway's prime critic, said that... Uh, the Hemingway everyone came to knew as sort of a public personality was Hemingway's own worst invented character. Huh. So, so I'm, I'm kind of exploring that through this book. So we're not only 
printing the legend, we're, we're kind of scraping some of the barnacles off of it. Yeah, I, I, I try to get at the, the real Hemingway, who I, I think, you know, he, he promoted himself as a, a man's man and a very athletic guy and a capable guy, but he was incredibly accident prone. He was nearly blind in one eye. Um, he was nearly constantly ill. He always had throat issues and um, there's a biography written by a man named Jeffrey Meyer that actually lists all of the ailments and injuries that we know Hemingway sustained or suffered in his life. And it's fairly small print. It runs about three pages. <laughs> so he was kind of a sickly, intellectual, bookish guy who just really tried to, to build himself up as this macho figure. And it worked well for him in the early portion of his life. But as he got older, he didn't know how to age gracefully. And the distance between his self-image and the image that he was conveying and the characters through his books just got deeper and wider and and I think kind of tore him apart. Your story takes place in the mid-60s and uh, Hemingway has been dead for four years and his wife, his last wife of many, is in the process of trying to control his legacy and establish her own. Yes. And we have this academic who's kind of a, a lush, and, mm -hmm. and his wife, and, and then the backdrop of a writer's conference, which, as I read it, I had to think, this must be fun to, to set this during a writer's conference, because you've probably endured a few of those. I've been to a few, <laughs> and uh, they, they aren't quite like this one, in that they tend to be, I, I go to a lot of crime fiction uh, events like that. There's one called BoucherCon where readers and, and crime fiction novelists can kind of mix and it tends to be more collegial than, than this does where you're, you're dealing with a bunch of academics who all have the same obsession, which is Hemingway, and they're all looking to just undercut and knife one another in any way they can. And, uh, and the professional jealousies are running thick and it, it is a scramble to kind of um, put their own stamp on Hemingway, just as Mary Hemingway is, is trying to do. She was a, a kind of middling journalist he met during the Second World War. She became his fourth wife. Um, most people who knew them said she was the least equipped of any of the women who passed through his life to be married to him. Um, she wasn't deeply intellectual. And uh, she really did see herself as his, his caretaker in terms of his literary image and took it upon herself to actually revise more of a movable feast, which was his posthumous memoir that was published in 1964, I believe. And she moved chapters around. She took uh, an early draft and constructed a last chapter that is nothing like anything Hemingway wrote. And she selected the title of the book. Um, he was originally going to call it The Eye and the Ear. And I have to give her credit. She came up with a much better title for the book than he would have had. But uh, Is that a movable feast? That's a movable feast, yeah. Okay. And then she she kind of proceeded on through the early 1980s with Islands in the Stream was a novel he left unfinished. She gave it that title. She chose the dust jackets. She cut the books, um, edited them, and... You know, for better or worse, what's happening now is that Kent State University, among others, is actually starting to print the posthumous works he left in their their unexpurgated form. So you can kind of really get a sense of how drastically things were altered. And they oh. just did a restored version of a movable feast. And when you read it, it's it's a good deal different than the book we've known for forty some years. Is it gobbledygook? It's it's 
deeper in some ways and richer. Uh, he took a lot of criticism for the way he, he kind of supposedly mocked F. Scott Fitzgerald in the latter part of A Movable Feast and for not really taking the blame for the ending of his first marriage in the Movable Feast version from 19, the 60s that Mary Hemingway edited. And if you read the new one, it's much more nuanced, and he's, he's much rougher on himself about the end of his first marriage, oh. which he always regretted. It's a little more nuanced in the way he deals with F. Scott Fitzgerald, and the book ends differently because she did shuffle the chapters around a bit and uh i I have to say though in an odd way maybe it's because i've known the book for so long and was and was so affected by it i kind of like her version better (laughs) but but i say that with some real mixed emotions Uh craig mcdonald joins us his novel is print the legend and we've been very good we really haven't given very much away about the plot to our listeners and i know you probably don't want to give much away but I've got to say, you have a really great villain in this, and, and I don't know what you want to say about him. The, there are probably two villains in the piece, and they're both uh, affiliated with the FBI. One is uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who did actually make surveillance of writers a, a real goal of his through most of his career going well into the 1970s. Um, Apart from Hemingway, who he was having followed really aggressively, he was having John Steinbeck surveilled, um, Robert Frost, the poet, who he was having watched when Frost was in his 80s, huh. um, uh, Nero, uh, Rex Stout, the creator of Nero Wolf, the mystery series, he was under surveillance, uh, Pearl S. Buck, too. Uh, a number of these were because of their political affiliations. Dashiell Hammett was under constant FBI surveillance, and his politics sort of opened him up to that. But uh-huh. but some of these people weren't in any way political in any sense we would think of, and it, it just seems to have been an obsession of Hoover's. And the other main villain of the book is a guy named Donovan Creedy, who is an FBI agent who was recruited by the FBI in the early 1920s to steal some of Hemingway's writings. Um, and he's a he's an aspiring novelist himself who ultimately becomes kind of a paperback thriller writer of really mediocre quality <laughs> and resents Hemingway. And they, they, Hemingway's sort of his bat noir who he pursues over decades. And he's actually based on um, E. Howard Hunt. I thought you might have. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, somewhat modeled on E. Howard Hunt, who was uh, uh, a, a racist by all accounts, and, and Donovan Creedy certainly qualifies on that front. And he was an FBI operative, uh, CIA as well. Uh, if you buy into the conspiracy theories, there are a lot of stories about him having been really neck deep in the planning and execution of the Bay of Pigs. Uh-huh. There are some theories that he was on the grassy knoll when Kennedy died. Um, he was a Watergate burglar, and he did actually serve some time for that. But as he was doing all of this, he was also a published novelist, and he wrote a number of paperback thrillers, some better than others, under his own name and under a string of pen names, and did that for a period of decades. And in fact, some of his books are just now coming back into print. Um, it was very much pulp Sort of his novelties, very much. Yeah. <laughs> very much. Mm-hmm. He was... It was part of that paperback original period in the 1950s and 60s when some of these writers uh, that we know now for much more high-quality work were churning out these things, you know, six, seven of these paperbacks a year, 50,000 mm. words. They'd write them in three weeks, four weeks. Mickey Spillane. 
people like that? Uh, Mickey Spillane, he, he probably was actually a cut above them in some uh-huh. ways. <laughs> uh, I mean, he had hardback publications oh, okay. for, for his books, but um, yeah, the, the gold medal paperback line is kind of the famous one that, that everyone knows, and that was one E. Howard Hunt wrote for quite a bit, and and they would just put out, you know, 30, 40 books a week sometimes. <laughs> but you read them and forget them. <clears throat> the book we're discussing today is Print the Legend. Craig McDonald wrote it. On, on the cover it says, a crime novel, but I think it's much more than that. I, I think it's more of a mystery. What's the difference? Yeah, it's funny. The, originally it said a mystery, and I, I kind of fought that and asked them to change it to a crime novel. I, I think in the world of, of genre fiction, for people who really read almost exclusively within it, mystery embodies some qualities that I'm not sure my books always, always engender. Um, because it is more of that puzzle kind of thing. And, and my second book probably will qualify more as a mystery in some ways, although I think uh, I, I tend to think of myself as a crime novelist, and, and the notion has sort of grown up that the crime novel has kind of become the home for the, the social novel or the historical novel uh-huh. in a sense. Um, so much of what passes as straight mainstream literature right now is plotless and uh and kind of proudly and stubbornly so and <laughs> and thin on character development and you know i think if hemingway or steinbeck were writing today they would probably be crime novelists just because um some of their their material kind of tended that way anyway i mean hemingway wrote some short stories that are that are kind of classic crime short stories now including the killers and uh to have and have not uh which was this key west depression novel if you read the first 40, 50 pages of that, you'd swear you're reading something Mickey Spillane might have written. <laughs> and it opens with machine gun fights in bars. and mm-hmm. yeah. So um, I think the mystery novel tends to be something that's a little tamer, a little safer. The murders can be a bit bloodless. Crime novels try to reflect a, a deeper, harder reality and, and just to be a little more authentic in their presentation of crime and its, its motivations and its outcomes. Craig McDonald joins us. His book is Print the Legend. And it's one of these books where it's based on real events, yet as you read it, you wonder, where do we cross the line into fiction? Because there's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm no Hemingway scholar, where I read it and I thought, now, did that really happen? For instance, did did Hemingway get shock treatments? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, One of the the horrible ironies of, of the end of Hemingway's life was that many people in, in mental illness or some strain of genetic depression or manic depression definitely runs through the Hemingway family. His father killed himself in the 1920s when Hemingway was writing a farewell to arms and uh, Hemingway's brother committed suicide. His sister committed suicide. One of the granddaughters committed suicide. Um, there's definitely something that runs through that family that that's tragic. Um, but he was regarded as becoming increasingly paranoid in the latter half of his life because he kept saying the FBI was following him and they were chasing him and they were pursuing them. And, and in the final weeks of his life, final days of his life, in fact, the very last night of his life, he pointed across a restaurant. He was eating in Idaho, his favorite restaurant called the Christiana. And he said, those two guys over there, they're FBI. And his wife, Mary, and others just thought, well, he's just, he's completely lost it, and he's just paranoid. And um, 
And it was probably true. It was absolutely true. (laughs) After his death, um, and and Mary did approve electroshock treatment for him at the Mayo Clinic to try and break him of these self-destructive tendencies. And Hemingway had suffered innumerable concussions. I don't think anyone really knows how many. If you have two or three concussions and you have an alcohol um, tendency as he did, Uh that, that can be personality changing on a permanent level, but, but those two things, either one of those disqualifies you from electroshock treatment. And he had both of them and he should never have been administered electroshock treatment. But, um, after he died through freedom of information act, various biographers and journalists and scholars started requesting his FBI files. And in fact, found out that he was followed right into the Mayo clinic. They consulted with his doctors. They knew he was going to be administered electroshock. Some, some indication that maybe they encouraged the doctors that that was a good idea and uh yeah so that's all true and um yeah the goal in any in writing any book like this is is the hope that you you blur it successfully enough that people can't quite tell where it drops off and where the create where the, the fact drops off and the fiction begins and uh one of the great compliments is that you know people will say well you sent me to google to look this up to see if that was all true <laughs> <laughs> well i loved it and, yeah. and i'm kind of well, a thank you I'm a tough one. I, I don't I don't love that many books and I love this one. That was Craig McDonald, recorded back in two thousand ten, talking about his novel Print the Legend. My only interview with him, he's a very mysterious guy. He wouldn't even tell me where he was. He was somewhere in Ohio when we did that interview. You've been listening to the Book Nook Potpourri uh, as we open up twenty twenty four on the program. Hope you enjoyed those uh, interviews. Tune in tomorrow at 10.30 when we'll bring you the book nook again, and we're going to go back to 1998, an interview I did with a guy named Bartle Bull for a novel I absolutely loved called Cafe on the Nile. It was part of a four-book series which uh, concluded about seven years ago. That's the book nook right here on WYSL.